You might remember our earlier promise to explore whether humans will colonize the cosmos before Christ returns. And we still intend to fulfill that promise, just at a later date. Really, we should have promised, yeah, we'll talk about that unless, say, some big news happens between now and then. Well, big news did happen. It dropped on June the 24th. For more about that issue, see other podcasts. But today on Fantastical Truth, we will instead explore fantastical stories that celebrate human life. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the often controversial real world that Christ calls us to serve. I'm E. Steve Burnett, publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am so glad that I was born because life is awesome. And this is episode 118, Which Fantastical Stories Help Us Celebrate Human Life? Zach, I think we should disregard that other uh, virtue uh, that has been ascribed to the month of June worldwide <laughs> and instead celebrate life all month. Welcome yes. to Life Month, or That's if right. life isn't big enough to get its whole month, we can at least have a life day. So happy life day, pal. <laughs> yes, it's a great day. So yeah, Stephen, we, uh, <laughs> it, it's unavoidable the, the topic that this is based on, or I should say the news story that this is based on, but uh yeah, we're not, we're not going to go into too much of the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court on this podcast. As we've said before, we're not the political truth podcast, we're the fantastical truth podcast, so we're going to focus on stories. But yeah, I got to just say, I'm definitely celebrating this decision. It's wonderful. It's something I've prayed for. It's something I've hoped for. We talked about it in our family. We've talked about it God, uh, since I was in college. I mean, since I wrote op-eds in my school newspaper about it. So it, it's wonderful to see, you know, there's a lot of mixed emotions out there. And, and even among Christians, even among conservatives, there's a lot of different opinions. And, you know, there's just too much ground to cover with all that. We're, we just don't have time for that because we got to talk about stories. But man, we have a lot of great stories to talk about today. I'm really excited because so many books. And in fact, just right before we started recording, Stephen, a book came to mind I haven't thought about in a long time. So I'm excited to even talk about that one. I did not know that you also wrote op-eds for your school newspaper. Uh, so did I back in the early 2000, well, mid, early to mid 2000s. Yes, I was the resident conservative columnist for the University of <laughs> Kentucky student newspaper. Oh, there sorry, I shouldn't have said op-eds. of stuff going on. Not op-eds? What did you write? No, then? sorry, I was a letter to the editor. You know, this oh, was, okay. okay. So, so kids uh, younger than, you know, 30 or whatever that are listening. So we used to have this thing called a newspaper <laughs> at school, and we used to not have it online. It was just in, pay, in print. You know, there were no comments section. There was no Facebook, obviously. And so you had to actually, well, I mean, you wrote it like an email and then, but then they would print it in the newspaper and the letters to the editor section. And so I, I wrote a very pro-life opinion. Uh, it was about this uh, pro-life uh, demonstration on campus, a very controversial one. I wrote in support of it. I couldn't believe they printed it. It was, uh, it was great to see that. I wonder if that would still happen today. Who knows? But yes, today everyone just argues in the comment section. I actually like that process of uh, having to write, you know, something very carefully worded within like a hundred words or something, because it really made you think, okay, hey, what, what is, how can I boil down my thoughts to this very small little window here and not just go on a long diatribe or Twitter thread or something. I don't think I've ever told you that my first printed material was actually a letter to the editor to the local newspaper. And it was, I kid you not, a response to this uh, mainline type uh, kind of liberal guy who was making fun of the Left Behind series. Oh. And that was my first printed material was actually a defense of the left behind series as foolishness that could shame the wise. Cause this guy was just so <laughs> mainline, so full of himself kind of like, ah, this is such cheesy stuff. Like 
well, okay, fine. Maybe it was cheesy stuff, but what was the purpose of it? You know, that's for another podcast. I should dig out that text somewhere. It was oh, that's a pretty great. notable. So I read that. No, I saved it somewhere. Anyway, uh, this is a celebration today, Zach. But why are we celebrating life, though? A lot of people have actually kind of doubled back now that I've seen, at least on some of the social feeds, and they've said, wait a minute, shouldn't we be sensitive? This is a sensitive issue. Like, we need to be very serious. We need to be very careful, very cautious. Not on this podcast, we ain't. But I think we have some good reasons to celebrate. Not justice, not laws necessarily. Uh, we're doing that in other ways. But on this podcast, we're going to talk about stories that help us celebrate human life. Not just unborn or preborn human life, but the gift of human life as God has made it, as God has defined it. And we'll share some thoughts about that in our special edition of the Fantastical Truth Concession Stand First off, let's get to our title sponsor for this episode. It is Returning Champ Enclave Publishing. Back in April, they published a 20-year anniversary edition of Arena by Karen Hancock. Here's the back cover description for that book. Originally published 20 years ago, now with a brand new cover and publisher and everything. Quote, a journey she did not choose will change her life forever. Transported surreptitiously to a terrifying alien world, with limited resources and only a few cryptic words to guide her, Callie Hayes finds herself engulfed in a perilous battle for freedom, for her very life. After agreeing to participate in a routine psychology research experiment, she must unravel the mysteries shrouding her only route of escape or risk succumbing to the deadly deception of the arena. End quote. Back then, the magazine Christianity Today said, quote, the genuinely enthralling mix of adventure, romance, and vivid imagery fused with spiritual symbolism invites readers to lose themselves in Hancock's imaginary world, engrossing and well-paced, end quote. Publishers Weekly also says, quote, Karen Hancock's intense story is an excellent, though edgy, contribution to the genre, end quote. I read uh, Arena way back a few years ago. I think maybe a few years after it came out. I think I was still traveling around with my family on vacations. And I can endorse those endorsements. Now, of course, it has a new publisher, brand new hardcover edition. Uh, the cover looks awesome. You can get more information in our show notes for this episode, 118, along with the Amazon link, or just go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. We get, we got a supreme edition of the concession stand, don't we, today? <laughs> it is absolutely, there's extra sour cream in here. Uh, there's extra pepperoni. There's whatever extra ingredients you like, absolutely. But let's uh, <laughs> let's open the concession stand, uh, peel off some wrappers, throw open the plexiglass, heat up the popcorn maker. Uh, we still want to follow the spirit of this rule four from the Lorehaven Guild Code of Conduct. But I said the spirit there because it's the spirit we're following. The law itself puts a, a few more limits on guild discussion, and some of our members were talking about that. Some of our heroes in there were saying, oh, I just want to cut loose and talk about the politics, but I know that's not what this place is for. <laughs> they are right. God bless them. They are good, virtuous heroes. Here, we're going to be a little bit more open than that, but not quite so open as, you know, maybe the comment section or the water cooler that you know. This is what the uh, Code of Conduct says, quote, beware of political issues, some books and their quests, may naturally explore moral issues that relate to political conflicts. We encourage gracious discussion of these ideas and themes as specifically related to the books. But members must avoid active discussion of specific political leaders, parties, or public policy, end quote. So, Zach, we're not going to talk about Dobbs other than a mention, other than a recognition that, of course, that's why we changed the topic all of a sudden for this episode, that we're not going to talk about parties 
or policies, like what the state governments are going to do. We're certainly not going to talk about leaders and who did what and who should have done something else. Yeah. But we are Boring. going to speak of moral issues. The moral issue here is the one that I think arguably was hijacked by political activists. It was a moral issue first. But we're not going to talk about the negative part. We're going to talk about the positive part. Like I said, we're going to celebrate life. And the reason why we're celebrating a life is not just because we're called to celebrate life in the scripture, but we're also called to celebrate justice. There are two Proverbs I found that specifically mention this. Proverbs 21:15. when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And Proverbs 29:2 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Zach, I notice in Proverbs that talk about wisdom and Psalms that talk about human emotion, there's not a lot of emphasis on what you're supposed to do for evangelism or what you're supposed to do for the sensitive situations. I think those may be exceptions to your public expressions of rejoicing uh, or your, uh, your public work for good policy, things like that. But not all of life is about those scenarios. We as Christians practice wisdom to know what hat we're wearing and what room we're in at the time. Not every room is the therapy couch uh, and not every room is a, a raucous debate hall or a public policy uh, chamber. Uh, we need to practice where we are. And that's why on this podcast, we're trying to be mindful of our restrictions on ourselves and do this right. Yeah. And I would just say this for a concession stand is, you know, we, we had some very explosive judicial cases in the last couple of years, the, the George Floyd, uh, and the Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, uh, those, uh, court cases went the way that, that most people wanted. And for a lot of Christians, uh, that were very tuned into that, they were very excited about that. You know, I, I don't know if there was exactly celebration, but there was definitely expressions of joy. Now, obviously it's a very somber thing that happened. And so you can't really celebrate that. And that's kind of how I feel about this topic is that it's a literal life and death kind of topic. And so I'm, I'm very glad for the way this decision went. At the same time, it's just very sobering to think about. But here is where I, I kind of center all my thoughts on this, Stephen. This is something I wrote yesterday that we're going to get to meet people in a few years who wouldn't have been alive otherwise. I, I mean, that's just an incredible thing to think about is that ultimately what we're talking about is human life and people being born. Like I said, I'm happy I was born. And we're going to meet people that are going to say the same thing. I'm so happy my mom chose life. I'm so happy I was born and I got a chance at life. And I'm excited. I'm an extrovert. I love to meet new people. I can't wait to meet people that wouldn't have been born otherwise. That's going to be amazing. And, uh, you know, and if you pay attention to what Elon Musk says, the uh, human species may depend on that because we're we're not having enough babies all around the world and especially in the West. And so... We need more babies and then, you know, maybe have some more kids born on Mars or whatever he wants to do. But, you know, th this is why I celebrate because I, I celebrate people. I, I celebrate more people and, and, ho and hopefully more people coming into God's kingdom because of this ruling, it, both not just people being born, but I, I think that this kind of ruling has, a, has an effect of kind of refocusing the moral paradigm. I, I think so, like you said, so much of what's going on is really a moral issue that gets shrouded in all these political things and all these, you know, donate to this or that. But really what it forces us to do is deal with our own convictions and, and where we draw the lines between right and wrong. And I, I think this really just shines a bright light on that. And I, the law is a school teacher that leads us to Christ. That's ultimately what I think is the good thing about this. The conviction people are going to feel for this is such a great opportunity for the gospel to advance 
and and yes, it it, it advances first by celebrating righteous rulings. Because I, I think if we don't celebrate them, then what does that say? We we don't think it's a good thing, or or that righteous laws are a good thing. You know, I I think we have to celebrate it. Of course, how you celebrate, you know, maybe don't dunk on people or whatever. Maybe don't uh, just run over people on in social media comments. I it, I think it matters how, and we're going to celebrate with stories that we love. Yeah, I look forward to celebrating, and I do celebrate this ruling. I join you in all of what you just said there. I do know that a lot of people feel like they're not able to celebrate. There are reasons they feel that the this is somehow compromised. You know, Maybe they've seen how the sausage gets made. Maybe they've seen corruption in their local church, or maybe they have friends who have suffered corruption or even abuse in local churches that claimed to be pro-life or claimed to be politically active in a certain way. I want to understand that and be sensitive, but at the same time, this is not all about that story. I also believe in some uh, noble dark stories. I, I don't think that we can be so sentimental about this issue. Uh, yes, of course, we're going to meet people who would not otherwise have been born. Uh, I do believe that while uh, politics is downstream of culture, uh, culture also gets its water from the water cycle from the sea. That is politics. You know, they all go in a circle. So I do celebrate these laws, but I don't want to get sentimental about it. There is some rough stuff that goes on uh, in order to get this result. And I know people have personally gone through uh, some rough stories to to get there. And of course, it's not over yet. You know, there's more to do, but that's not what we're going to talk about here. I also think, though, that some Christians are just uncomfortable because there are some people out there who are believing lies about life, about themselves, about human nature, about sex, about their identity, reproduction, family, all of those things. I think some Christians feel that so long as those people are angry at Christians or the church or at humanity in general, then we should not be allowed to celebrate. I also think that some Christians try to be more spiritual than God, uh, as if we mm. cannot celebrate justice like the Proverbs say or the Psalms endorse, uh, because we've got to be always on for evangelism. We don't want to create any barriers to the gospel even barriers that are uh, biblical barriers. Uh, I would like to ask these people, okay, does that mean that you're not going to speak kindly yet, frankly, about uncomfortable biblical truths like hell or God's wrath or God's law? Like how, how far do we go with this? I just, I don't believe that our chief end is evangelism or making people feel comfortable. I don't want to put a stumbling block in their way. The scripture is very clear not to do that. But there are some realities that we cannot have the gospel without. Uh, if your goal is evangelism, you have to go there in some of the rougher areas. You can't just be the good comp Christian who lets the uh, bad comp hell and brimstone and fire preacher uh, handle all the rough edges of the gospel. This leads me to a talk that actually C.S. Lewis imagined uh, between himself as a character in his own story uh, and George MacDonald, the real-life uh, Scottish author. Oh, so, okay, here's something I wondered, Stephen, because I know we're going to be reading uh, George MacDonald's Fantasties uh, this month in the Guild. I know he preceded Lewis, but did they were they alive at the same time? Did they ever meet each other? I don't think they were, no. No, Lewis okay. just relied on MacDonald as a mentor, and so that's why Lewis included him as a character Interesting. In, okay. in The Great Divorce. Yes, now, The Great Divorce is about this imaginary journey uh, from a metaphorical hell to a metaphorical heaven. Lewis believed in literal hell and literal heaven, but was using these as metaphors here to describe present-day decisions on Earth and their effects for eternity. So what's just happened in this chapter is that Lewis has seen a saint, a redeemed woman, uh, trying to persuade her son to stay, and he just absolutely refuses. He won't do it. Uh, Lewis, of course, doesn't believe that people can go from hell to heaven like that, but again, it's metaphor. 
Anyway, if I remember right, that's the setting for this. And Lewis's character says, and I'll quote here on uh, out from the uh, dialogue, Lewis's character says, what some people say on earth is that the final loss of one's soul gives the lie to all the joy of those who are saved. And then George MacDonald's uh, imaginary version of him says, you see, it does not. I feel in a way that it ought to. That sounds very merciful, but see what lurks behind it. What? The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned, that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else should taste joy, that theirs should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. I don't know what I want, sir. Son, son, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. I know it has a grand sound to say ye'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside, but what's that sophistry? Or ye'll make a dog and a manger the tyrant of the universe. Ah, that's amazing. That's great. I mean, yeah, so amazing. basically, misery loves company, and and that is exactly what's still playing out. It, online it does, today. <laughs> and I think Christians with sensitive hearts, and I understand this because I've you know been through training about how to try to handle trauma in oneself and in others, and all of that. We do foster care, all that stuff. Like that has merit to be this level of empathetic. But please, as imaginary McDonald says, take care not to get that. Uh, you may say not to let that empathy turn into a sin, or else you will make the self-inflicted miserable person. Yeah the tyrant of the universe hell should not be allowed to veto heaven uh, and in this case uh, a little bit of common grace heaven shall we say has vetoed uh, a bit of hell on earth and there's still more hell going on we don't believe in overrealized eschatology uh, sin is still here and certain sins will remain imaginable they will remain thinkable until christ returns i think christians have some work to do but some of that work involves sabbath rests we are not always on monday through saturday we also get sundays and flashes of sabbath rest in between so with that in mind i realize this episode may not be best for you if you're not in a celebratory mode uh, but in that case maybe skip this episode for now come back to it later yet we are going to be positive here we're going to point to some christian made stories we know that celebrate human life as well as some secular stories that we either know or have heard about yeah, Stephen, I think the key word in that uh, passage there is uh, people that want to blackmail the universe. And, and that is exactly the, the pressure campaigns I've seen from a few people this weekend who are like, no, 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 stop. You can't, you can't celebrate. You can't do this because of this or that. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're not only scolding people, you're trying to hold them hostage, right, to this certain sentimentality you think everyone should have. And I, I just reject that. And I've seen that play out a lot over the last couple of years. I, I'm already kind of done with that sort of stuff. But yes, I, I know that for some people, in fact, I have a very, I have a friend on Facebook, a fellow podcaster uh, who shared a very, you know, heart wrenching story of she went through an abortion as a teen girl. Uh, and she kind of lived with this lie for a long time that she's condemned forever and that God wants nothing to do with her. And it, took decades for her to kind of work through that, uh, to, to come to Christ, to, uh, to be set free from shame and guilt. Um, and you know, and she also went through a lot of other tragic things in her life, but, uh, she shared that in the hope that people would see the truth and accept the truth about this issue, but also walk in freedom 
uh, and that Jesus sets us free. But, uh, you know, she was very blunt about what, you know, what this issue is about. It, she wasn't, you know, pulling punches or whatever, just using euphemisms. She was saying the truth about it. And um, maybe people are not in a place where they can hear that right now. But for those that are, I, I think uh, this is a, a great time to celebrate. Absolutely. Uh, with that in mind, uh, let's close up the concession stand. Pre-party is over. The actual party begins. And to switch metaphors, though, we begin with chapter one of our content, Christian-made fantasy, sci-fi, and supernatural stories we know. I'm actually going to start with a review that we posted just yesterday. It was a bonus review at lorehaven.com. We do reviews every Friday, and so our review of choice was actually for an upcoming book from, actually, our title sponsor, Enclave Publishing, but coincidentally enough, it's called The Wonderland Trials by Sarah Ella, coming out in July 2022. But we also did a retro review of a Frank Peretti novelette called Tilly, which was originally published in 1986, based on an audio drama. I think they said it was an audio drama made by Focus on the Family. Our own uh, staff creator, LG McCary, wrote that retro review. And I'll just quote from it in full here, Zach. Uh, we'll include the link in the show notes. She says, Kathy walks through a cemetery after a funeral and notices a woman mourning at a tiny gravestone. The stone bears a single date and a name, Tilly. The sight deeply affects Kathy and her husband, Dan. After a week of insomnia, Kathy dreams her backyard is full of nameless children that she shoes away. Only one remains, a little girl who seems strangely familiar. The rest of the story follows Kathy's dream journey with the girl and her husband's real-life journey to find the woman they saw mourning at the tiny headstone. Frank E. Peretti originally created Tilly as a radio drama for Focus on the Family before translating this heartbreaking supernatural story into a novel. This book explores the pain, guilt, and trauma of abortion with a gentle, compassionate tone. Written in 1986, Tilly may feel melodramatic to today's readers, but remains a tearful tale of brokenness and redemption. This book is best for adult and older teen fans of Peretti's signature brand of supernatural. And you may want to discern repeated discussions about abortion, though not graphic, some unusual supernatural elements left for readers to interpret, and main themes of guilt, repentance, and forgiveness. Zach, I've read a lot of Frank Preddy stuff, almost everything, except his uh, last novel, Illusion, which uh, L.G. McCary is also a fan of. But I've not read Tilly. I've not heard the audio drama. It sort of just skirted uh, the outside of my evangelical radar all this time. Yeah, I, had, I haven't heard of it either. So this uh, this looks good. It, I feel like I've read some similar stories kind of to this, but not this one in particular. Well, Peretti also wrote a novel a few years later that I did read. Uh, it is called Prophet, and it was written in 1992. Uh, it looks to me as I compare them, it looks like Tilly explores uh, more of the personal uh, uh, side of abortion. But Prophet explored more of the media side of things. This is kind of fun because the book was originally published in 1992, 30 years later. Uh, a lot of the elements have aged pretty well, uh, but some of the nightly news stuff seems pretty retro now, even though we still have evening news channels and such. Everything's cable news. Everything's on your phone and not so much the picture tube televisions and fax machines that you'd have in the 90s. I won't quote from that uh, full review. We'll link to that in the show notes. But to suffice it to say, it's about a Christian anchorman who rediscovers his faith and his prophetic calling when he discovers skullduggery going on in his very newsroom and a scandal with the governor uh, that his father, who's a firebrand Pentecostal street preacher, has confronted in public, and then suddenly the anchorman's father ends up dead. Uh, interestingly enough, Peretti himself later went back and said, you know, I think I could have done better with profit, and he maybe could have. He seems to think that the abortion issue made it more of an agenda book 
But to me, the theme of the novel still shines through that there's a lot of media skullduggery going on with this issue. There are people with personal agendas and personal trauma in places of leadership in our media. Uh, the media are not unbiased. Uh, they are not objective. And I'm unlike some other pundits when I say that. I don't say that to be accusatory as if, well, you should be unbiased. You should be objective. I use that in my attempt to be empathetic. We are all human. We all have stories, often tragic backstories. They're going to involve how we see these issues. And I think that's why fiction, unlike nonfiction, is so important to help us empathize with characters. Because if we practice empathizing with characters, we'll be better at empathizing with real life mm -hmm. people we meet. Yeah. And I think that's a very good distinction to make, Stephen, is that we should be empathetic towards people, but we should be clear about issues and, and truth. Like, I, I don't think we need to be empathetic towards euphemisms or towards just outright false ideas. I think we should be somewhat ruthless about lies and, and truth. Like, we should be very, very loyal to the truth, but but loyal to people in that we don't just hit everyone over the head with truth. Truly, the most loving thing you can do for someone is tell the truth. And how you tell that, of course, matters. But telling the truth is itself an act of love. What's that uh, poem, the L Emily Dickinson poem you've quoted before on the podcast, Zach? Tell all the tell truth, the truth but tell but it slant. Tell it slant. Yep. Yeah. Fiction can tell it slant. Like sometimes it's a little less slant. You know, you may have more of a 80 degree angle than a 35 degree angle. Uh, if that's the slant that she's talking about. But sometimes you do have to sneak past the watchful dragons. And then sometimes you have to come at them with a helmet and a shield and a sword. Uh, martial imagery there, definitely warranted. Uh, so there's a new book out from Enclave by Kathy McCrum. It's called Recorder. Uh, I've not read this, but LG McCary, our recent guest, has read this. And uh, this was her remarks on the novel uh, called Recorder. Quote, the theme of this entire story is Imago Dei. The recorder exists because abortion has been changed into people giving their unwanted pregnancies to a facility where they grow kind of like in uh, the 2005 movie The Island. Then when they are born, they are trained as human recording devices or other dehumanizing jobs. They are never given names and are treated like computers, not people. Many of the recorders are gifted because they have some kind of disability and the recorder herself is strongly implied to have autism, end quote. So yeah, this does sound like a mix-up between, um, or a mashup between the island, also between uh, Clone Wars, uh, or Attack of the Clones, and you know, just these uh, people kind of being raised as automatons, in a sense, and, and trying to find their humanity. Uh, but obviously this is from a Christian author, and so I, I think it's really going to lean a lot more into those themes that you know these secular stories have only just kind of touched on. And so... Uh, this sounds like a great book. Yeah, see that link in the show notes. We reviewed it for Lorehaven uh, earlier this year, I think, even though the book released uh, last fall, 2021. Turning from there, we have another book. It's actually the uh, current choice as of June 2022. It's the Book Quest ongoing in the Lorehaven Guild, the exclusive Discord server for free Lorehaven subscribers. Our book is a robo-drama by Carrie Needs. I've mentioned it before called Lost Bits. I love that. I, I, I call it that. I, see, this, what's <laughs> funny, and I've told Carrie this, like I like to come up with pitches for other people's books, uh, <laughs> not, not to try to you know, take away their pitch, but just to you know, put my own unique spin on it. Okay, this song going to sell this book to other people. You know, I got this little book salesman inside me, probably with plaid pants and a cheesy grin. Uh, in this case, this book is not cheesy. This is a robo-drama. It's about a robot named K404 who wakes up and finds himself in a robot's grave. He climbs up out of the junkyard. Uh, his circuits come back online. His solar power starts filling up. 
And he starts to wonder, okay, what did I miss? What happened? How did I end up here? And best of all, where is the family I was created to serve? This is a robot who's very aware of his place in the world, his purpose. He never deviates from that. He has emotions. He has logic. He has rationality. And he's very human-like. But he knows that he is a tool. He knows that he was created to serve human beings. And I just love this character. I love this story. Uh, he eventually makes his way uh, through this junkyard uh, and he finds other robots, including some that have been uh, corrupted by humans or other robots. And it's a, it's great science fiction. It is a story about human nature through the eyes of man-made things. Uh, that actually elevates the role of the human, I think. But you see so few of them in the book. I won't get into spoilers there. But you see that humans are special, you know, human tools. Like imagine if a tool or a toy that you had loved, you actually did come to life and then sought you out uh, because in a sense they loved you, or at least they were doing what their programming told them to do. But we're also made for love. You know, we're not programmed. Uh, we are made for the purpose of glorifying God and serving him and in so doing find perfect happiness. So this is just bringing that down another level. You know, humans are not gods to four or the other robots. But they are kind of like that because humans made robots to serve them. So you get this message. Uh, it's not about pro-life cause necessarily, uh, but it's simply about human life and the majesty and the inherent goodness of human life, even when humans are doing uh, shady things like uh, wars and dystopians and things like that. Okay, now, Stephen, I, I told you earlier there was a book I thought of this morning, and I, and you know you, you sort of gave me a soft pitch for it which is Soul Harvest, the book number four in Left Behind. And I, you may know where I'm going with this, but somewhat of a spoiler here, but you know, the book's been out for 20 years. So one of the main characters, Hattie, first it's announced she's uh, engaged to Nikolai, the, the Antichrist. And you know, she doesn't get with Rayford, spoiler, who she's having an affair with or an emotional affair, I guess, in book one. But then she announces that she's pregnant, um, but she tries to get away. From Nikolai, she goes to an abortion clinic. I'm trying to remember all the events here in order. She goes to an abortion clinic, and then uh, Buck. Oh, the, the Christians break her. her out. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a big old action scene. Yeah, right. And they they convince her not to get an abortion, but then uh, sadly, she does lose the baby through uh, uh, through stillbirth, and I, I think it was a poisoning attempt or something. Nikolai. Tried yeah. To well, the, the the fetus ends up being like this kind of mutant hell spawn. It, it's it's actually. <laughs> A little oh, bit more right. paranormal than the left, even the Left Behind series <laughs> was want to go. I, I think there was a bit of the Merlin legend actually thrown in there, just uh, bits oh. and pieces of it. Yeah, because uh, some of the legends say that uh, Merlin, the wizard, actually was uh, an, an, a, an attempt at an antichrist or something, and like he was a child of the devil. So the, mm. some of that actually mythology getting in there in the Left Behind books four and five. Yeah, but I I thought that was so interesting in the story that she goes from not wanting the baby. Uh, and wanting to get an abortion to deciding to keep it, but then losing it through uh, through this poisoning attempt. I believe she mourns the baby. And yes, there is the kind of the weird mutant stuff about it. But, you know, th that seemed like one of those moments that was then used in, in her life to draw her to the Lord. And so, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I thought they handled that pretty well. And if I remember, this is a long time ago when I read that. Yeah, Zach, that's what I remember that story being as well. And again, props to the Left Behind series for sneaking in a, a nuanced plot line there. Uh, we've talked about some of these at length, mainly because it's just fun to find more nuanced, you know, a little bit more slightly literary plot lines in such a pulp action sci-fi end times thriller series made for the eighth grade reading level. 
you, you can find prizes even in these uh, populist stories if you know where to look. And in this case, I think it takes eight or nine books for Hattie to finally get saved. Now, in the Left Behind universe, yeah. everybody's got to either get saved or die in plagues or get the mark of the beast. There's really no other way around that. So that does kind of force the issue for her. But for it to take eight full-length novels over a space of even more years as this series was still current strikes me now as realistic. Uh, you don't get someone saved always before the credits roll in the first movie of your evangelical series. Sometimes it takes years and years, whether it's a tribulation or modern life, and that aligns close to reality. People will take years. Zach, you mentioned the person who took, you said, decades to figure this out. And yeah. there's, all, there's two steps forward, three steps back. The Holy Spirit is ridiculously patient. And yet when anyone comes to the Lord, as, the, uh, as I think it's the book of Hebrews that says that the angels celebrate, there is celebration in heaven. And that's the theme of this episode. Once again, celebration. Yeah. And I think just the, the whole uh, character arc of Hattie in Left Behind is also a celebration of life because you know, she's kind of like one of the holdouts that doesn't come to Christ till the very end, but that it, it very much like the thief on the cross. It's like his whole life was spent rebelling, uh, sinning, but then Jesus has mercy on him. And I think that very much affirms the value of human life is that, you know, God is not willing that any should perish, but that they all come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. Yeah. He, he would rather a wicked person turn from their ways and live because God loves life. Amen to that. You see how much God loves life. Going back to Genesis 1, where God creates man and woman, expands on the narrative there, day six in Genesis 2. But first we hear God creating man and woman in his image, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the air, the fishes of the sea, the beasts of the fields, all of those things. I bring this up because it does connect to our big topic at Lorehaven of imagination, God-given imagination. I love it that God gives the command for people to have stewardship over the earth as representatives, ambassadors on behalf of him. He gives that command at the same time as he gives the command to be fruitful and multiply. The family reproducing and getting together, males and females getting together in covenant relationships and optimally having children, if they can, there's exceptions. That's another podcast. But he gives that command at the same time he gives them the command to do science and technology and agriculture and creative works and imagination. So if you believe deep down, based on scripture or otherwise, that humans are supposed to make things in the world uh, for some good purpose, then you must also logically believe, according to Genesis 1.28, that God has given people uh, the gift of making families and having children and filling the earth. All those commands go together. They are, in effect, according to the Bible itself, the very same command. Speaking of creativity, that leads us to our second sponsor for this episode. Now less than one month away. Wow. It is the Realm Makers Conference for 2022, hosted live in Atlantic City, New Jersey, from July 21st through 23rd. I've got my hotel booked. I was laying in my course. Uh, my wife and I are, God willing, going to drive all the way from Austin to New Jersey this year for Realm Makers, but you don't have to drive there if gas is a little uh, expensive, which we know it is, or if you had other plans, you can also go live online. But I'm jumping into the description that they've given me, which is something like this, quote, are you excited to take the next step in your speculative fiction journey? 
not an actual trip to space or through time or forging your own sword. Instead, join us for Realm Makers 2022. We're all about the creativity on Fantastical Truth as readers, as fans of these stories, but maybe you want to go further. Maybe you have a story you've written or an idea you'd like to pitch to an editor or a publisher or an agent. They will be there at Realm Makers, which is all about Christian creativity. The annual conference is in person in Atlantic City, but it's also live online. So you can watch the classes, the teaching live in real time, including, I believe, the banquet, the awards banquet that we have every Friday for the Realm Awards. Every class is live streamed for virtual attendees. So either way, you can also connect on the Realm Sphere, which has a dedicated conference space. Also, the conference is an amazing value because this year, if you sign up, if you register for it and you attend, you get access to replays of every class available through the Realm Sphere. Learn more information for our show notes for this episode 118, or again, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. You can still sign up for Realm Makers. We'll have the registration link there in the show notes. From there, let's go to chapter two, which isn't necessarily about Christian-made fantasy or sci-fi, but is secular-made fantasy and sci-fi, at least the stuff that either Zach or I know and have personally read or watched. We've got a lot of listed items here. We're going to try to get through them fairly quickly because it would take some time. And a lot of this, I've noticed, Zach, is science fiction, maybe not necessarily newer science fiction, with some exceptions from Doctor Who episodes. But uh, here I reveal, (laughs) it's kind of a funny way to say this, But I must reveal my second choice of religion if for some reason everything were to go backwards uh, on this timeline and we discover for some reason that Jesus never really rose from the dead. What religion would I opt for as a backup? It would probably be classic secular humanism because at least classic secular humanism reflects some Judeo-Christian virtues. Now, ultimately, they have no foundation for those virtues. It just seems to them an evolutionary advantage for people to respect life and things like that. I'm being a little facetious here, and I've mentioned this before, but I think the reason why I appreciate that is because, yeah, at least they respect life, even if they don't know why. But of course, I know that the gospel is true. Ultimately, secular humanism and the science fiction that comes from this worldview uh, is indebted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's really no way around that. Yeah. And uh, this first book I want to talk about is, or it's a short story by Philip K. Dick. And I don't know if he was a Christian. I, I heard some mention that he might have been um, raised in the Catholic Church. Yeah, some some of them are underground or have that background in their past. And you mentioned this right. actually by coincidence, I think, in our very last episode, 117. That's right. Yeah, so this is a, a short story he wrote in 1973 called The Pre-Persons. 1973. Yeah. Wow. He wrote this in the wake of Roe v. Wade. Uh, he was not a fan of it, I take it, uh, based on this story. And he started to imagine a future of like, well, you know, like all good sci-fi and dystopia, you know, what's the worst that could happen from this? Like, what, what's the absurd but kind of logical end of, of these rulings? And so he imagined a future where children under the age of uh, 12 or 13 could be aborted at any time or could, could have a post-birth abortion, basically to be, you know, euthanized. Um, it's sort of like a pound facility. So there, there's these trucks that go around. And, and pick up kids their parents didn't want anymore or kids that are strays. Or in the, uh, in the case of the main child in the story, a child whose parents did not fill out the proper forms, the proper paperwork, Form 36W, which is a formal statement of desirability. The boy in this case didn't, didn't have that form on him. It's kind of a show me your papers. And he says, well, I don't have the form. And, and so the, uh, the dog catcher type person, I, I forget the, the, the child catcher? 
Does he have his little wagon from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, the county official, uh, Peace Officer Ferris is his name. You know, he's like, uh, well, you know, where's your form? And the kid says, well, my, I never got the form. And then finally the father shows up. His name is Ed Gantro. And Ed says, you know, we, we couldn't afford the, uh, the $90. And, the uh, the peace officer says, well, now it'll cost you $500 and the, the child will be, you know, basically interned in this facility until either you can pay or 30 days goes up. And after which case he's either gets adopted by someone else or euthanized. And so this boy's future kind of, uh, hangs in the balance. So this is the, the great part of the story. So th- this is spoilers. I'm just going to give away here. Um, Ed Gantro, the father says, well, I, I want you to take me in too. And the peace officer is like, well, wh- you know, you're an adult and, uh, and anyone over the age of 12 has a soul. And they sort of argue about this. He's like, well, what gives people a soul? It's like, oh, the right to do, you know, algebra. And he says, well, I forgot all my algebra. <laughs> I can empathize. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, uh, one of the officials says, well, um, I know you even knew calculus and trig something. You went to Stanford university. And the father says, I want to show that either they ought to kill all of us or none of us, but not divide along these bureaucratic arbitrary lines. When does the soul enter the body? What kind of rational question is that in this day and age? It's medieval. In fact, he thought it's a pretext, a pretext to prey on the helpless. And he was not helpless. The abortion truck had picked up a fully grown man with all his knowledge, all his cunning. How are they going to handle me? He asked himself. Obviously, I have what all men have. If they have souls, then so do I. If not, then I don't. But on what real basis can they put me to sleep? Oh, so th- this is just a great story. And I, I, I won't read past that because I, I want to encourage you guys to go get this book. So this is in the uh, collection called The Eye of the Sybil and Other Classic Stories by Philip K. Dick. So th- this is uh, like a short story collection that he came out with. And we'll, we'll put the, uh, the title of that and the link in the, in the show notes. It's a great thing to find a story out in the wild in just the secular sci-fi world that affirms the, the sanctity of life. This does not sound subtle. I mean, he's literally saying abortion truck. He's literally talking about souls and things. Oh, yeah. And it's very Some blunt. of the other science fiction here can be pretty overt. But in, in this yeah. case, this is, seems to be the most overt of the bunch. Yeah. As you said, it, 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 he wrote it soon after the original Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. So uh, it sounds like he got, uh, he got a little bugaboo about that uh, rather drastic uh, Supreme Court uh, imposition of law, despite the fact that they're justices and not legislators. But anyway, moving on. Uh, is that another one of those stories, Zach, by Philip K. Dick with a cumbersome title like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And then they end up giving it a snappier title for an 80s <laughs> action movie or maybe a movie like A Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Now, the, the title that that story is just The Pre-Persons. And it's never been made into a movie with a snappier action title. No, I, I don't imagine it will be. Will it ever be? Okay, well, let's hope. Let's hope so. Yeah, maybe, uh, hey, maybe uh, uh, Pure Flix or Angel Studios or somebody could get a hold of the rights and then uh, opportunity work, work, there. work with the uh, Philip uh, K. estate and see if we can get that made into a <laughs> major motion picture. Change some hearts and minds. Anyway, uh, moving on, I, uh, I have not read that story, but now I really want to. However, I have seen, I think by now, every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation including the really bad ones from the season one and uh, some of the really bad ones from season two. Uh, one of the episodes of season two is called The Child in 1988, uh, which is a bit controversial because there's this uh, speck of light 
that basically enters Counselor Troy and makes her pregnant against oh, yes. her will. Yeah, An immaculate conception. A little right. bit, yes. So <laughs> it gets a little trippy. Uh, it's one of the more mystical uh, TNG episodes, and some people even on the pro-life side have said, yeah, that episode's a little problematic. But then again, almost <laughs> all of season two is problematic. And by the way, I still don't like the word problematic. I'm just using that as a concession. Anyway, I think there is some redemptive point to that episode. If for no other reason than literally there's a moment where Troy is looking at the image of this unwanted, originally unwanted life inside her. She sees effectively a ultrasound and she decides, you know what? It is my choice and I'm going to keep this life, even though we don't know where it came from. It could be hostile. It could be a parasite. It could be something that's going to, you know, do the alien chest burster thing. Who knows? Uh, maybe counselor Troy is more optimistic. She hasn't seen the alien movie. Uh, everything turns out. Okay. It just ends up taking the form of a human and then aging very quickly. And then you figure out, Oh, this was just an incorporeal being that wanted to experience corporeal reality and the whole human story condensed inside of 45 minutes. But the point is that Troy does voluntarily choose life. And the episode for all its faults does try to show this as a desirable, noble thing that she chose. Uh, similarly, in a much better episode, uh, famous to this day, called The Measure of a Man in 1989, still part of season two, so high point of season two, uh, there's this whole uh, court case over whether Commander Data, who is an android, uh, has a presumed right to human life. Uh, is he uh, sentient? Is he worthy of life? Or can the Federation just take him apart and figure out how to make more of him? It's still one of the absolute best Star Trek episodes, uh, if for no other reason then they did not nerf the case against Data being presumed human. Uh, Riker actually has to be pressed into service to do his best to act as a kind of prosecutor in this court hearing. Uh, and Picard has to defend Data. And then Picard has some famous speeches. You know, he's in a full awesome you know, Sir Patrick Stewart uh, speech mode talking about, you know, Your Honor, the Federation has set out to discover new life. Well, there he sits. Uh, and there's some great lines there, you know, but still at the end, Kind of coming down, you know, mixed positive toward data being human, which I think leads to a, a common point of pro-life apologetics is that even if, even if worst case scenario, you don't know that it's a human life. The point is, is that the presumed right is on the side of the potential human life. Uh, a hunter ought not shoot at a bush uh, because it is uh, shaking if he's out in the woods, uh, because yeah, that might be the deer you were after, or it might be your hunting buddy. You don't shoot at the movement until you know for sure uh, what it is. There's a couple of other TNG episodes, uh, two of them from 1992. Uh, one's called The Inner Light, which isn't so much about uh, babies and the nature of life and things. It is simply a celebration of Picard's, uh, again, unwanted uh, uh, existence. He's uh, kind of pressed into service by an alien probe to live through this virtual existence where he's a husband and a father it turns out on this alien world that vanished a long time ago and it simply celebrates this obscure life of this man whom no one will ever know and it is an absolutely heart-wrenching and truly touching episode uh, very famous at the end especially because you find out that the flute that this man whose life Picard lived was actually in the probe and Picard just brings out the flute and just starts playing it as if he's always known. So he will carry these memories and this this wonderful existence around for the rest of his life. It just in, in one space of 45 minutes, you just advance his character and he gets to live this yeah. life that he's never known as a starship captain uh, who never married and who never had a son, at least so far in the timeline. Hopefully they don't retcon that. 
Uh, it's just a great way to celebrate family. It's a great way to celebrate life. I love that episode, Stephen. It's one of my all-time favorites. I've wa- I've rewatched it so many times. I've uh, watched it with my kids. Uh, I've told Naomi that you know this gave me a really positive vision of marriage, uh, just a really uh, something to look forward to. It, it just is such an idealistic. Um, well, I mean, obviously not an idealistic world, but just a very good marriage that you see in this, in a, in a great family, um, very affirming of, of all of the above. And so um, I, I I love it, and I think it won a uh, is it an Emmy that the, the TV shows win? I don't recall, but but it should have been award winning and certainly significant enough to the Star Trek lore to have defined Picard's character. By the way, I did find out that I'm not, although in retrospect, I'm not a huge fan of Star Trek Picard season one. I do love the theme for that series and the theme for Star Trek Picard literally quotes from the melody that Picard plays on the flute in this episode. Oh, wow. So it's a wonderful thematic callback to one of uh, Picard's most significant moments uh, developing as a hero. Uh, A less known episode from that same season in 1992 was uh, the episode called The Quality of Life in which Data, who, of course, has had his uh, his presumed right to life defended uh, several years ago. Uh, now defends the presumed life of these uh, robots that he's made, these little drones called exocomps, uh, which start to demonstrate some rather uh, sentient life level behavior. And again, it's just this machine, you know, that's being lifted up on wires, you know, painted out uh, for this episode. But uh, these machines demonstrate an awareness of moral behavior and a willingness to self-sacrifice in addition to all the other, you know, biological signposts of life. Uh, movement and will and things like that. And Data starts defending these things and everyone else is saying, what? It's it's just a robot. And by the end, again, you know, it's a little bit unknown. But the fact is, is that in the world of Star Trek, the uh, classic humanist world of Star Trek, at least at this point, you presume that something ought to have the right to life uh, and you celebrate that. It is a case of wonder. It's why the Starship Enterprise is exploring the universe to, to discover, seek out life, to seek out new life. Yes. That's the goal of the whole thing. Uh, I think, by the way, things went a little bit better for Data in that episode uh, than as uh, the fate that befell the Google engineer. Zach, you saw this one uh, (laughs) within the last few weeks, uh, who started thinking that his uh, computer AI was talking back to him. Uh, Google checked into it and they said, um, no, that is literally a programmed response, you know, um, and they fired the engineer. Uh, I looked into that story a little bit casually, and I think the thing that gives it away is the fact that it is literally a computer program on a screen talking about its friends and going to parties and things like that. Like it is mimicking behavior that it's picked up on the Internet. The AI doesn't have any physical form. It literally has not had this past going to parties or friends or anything like it is impossible for it to do that. So. I think it's just, again, it's uh, it's another instance of people imagining things because people are people. You don't turn into some kind of a magic science being uh, ward of all truth and rationality uh, just because you're in a Google lab or you wear a white, white lab coat somewhere. You know what I like about Star Trek, though, Stephen, is that it, it's like you said, they, they want to presume that there's life there until proven otherwise. And celebrate than, the life that you presume there. Yeah. Right, rather, rather than the other way around. And, and it does bring up a lot of challenging you know, permutations of this in Star Trek Voyager, they basically meet this whole society of holograms, you know, and and these holographic beings. It's like, well, are they, are they deserving of rights? And there's a whole debate about that. I think this really is the right direction of society is to extend more and more 
uh, rights to people, or at least ex- recognize that the, the same rights should exist for all people. And I, I thought that's what the pre-persons did so well. It's like, well, if he doesn't have a right to life, then why do I? It's more dystopian than sci-fi. But <laughs> I, I think the most amazing thing about that story, by the way, is that there's all this paperwork that they go into and all these bureaucratic forms and titles. And, and it's like that, that is exactly the, the, the dark side of human society. How everything kind of wicked and evil be, becomes this, uh, this bureaucratic formality, right? I think Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy deals with that of like, you know, Earth is about to get wiped out by this alien species to build this intergalactic highway. And then the the guy complains about it to this uh, federation council, and they're like, "Well, did you fill out this uh, form in triplicate or whatever?" He's like, "No, I didn't even know I had to do, fill out that form to keep Earth from getting wiped out by this imminent domain, you know, thing." That's what sci-fi can do really well. It, it shows how evil can just become so commonplace. But you know, Star Trek took a lot more optimistic take on that, and they have so many different uh, new life and new species. Um, I can think of another one where there's like a space baby. Thing or like, but it's like a like a whale or something that it's like some kind of oh, it's just like a creature. Yeah, no, it's yeah, not Star Trek for the Voyage Home. It's not the the whales on Earth. It's like a yeah. space whale. Yeah, a space that's whale. true. That's a... Yes, and then they end up uh, shooting at it because they thought it was hostile, uh-huh. and then the, it ends up actually uh, uh, having a child uh, who then right. uh, latches on to the Enterprise to try to receive nutrients, and then okay, well now their responsibility. I guess you could say that they are tied to the famous violinist. Uh, but they're still responsible uh, because they have the resources, they're in the right place, and they are truly noble heroes there aboard the Starship Enterprise. Their responsibility is to relay this new life uh, to its new home. Yeah, and it like nurses off of their, their shields or something like that. Exactly. At risk to the ship at some point. But, you know, they're, they're good engineers down there at uh, Starfleet. They, they can get it done. That's right. Zach, you mentioned that it's it's very optimistic in Star Trek, and I'll, I'll get to Doctor Who in a moment to close us out. But I, I want to have at some point, I think, a whole uh, episode to talk specifically about uh, the two famous dystopian novels of the uh, 20th century, uh, Huxley's Brave New World and then uh, George Orwell's 1984. I'm actually reading or rather listening to the audiobook of Brave New World right now. And that, I will tell you, is some frightening, absolutely terrifying stuff. Uh, I had not read them before. I know I'm a bad nerd. I haven't read them before. <laughs> I've only heard the popular references, you know, mostly to Big Brother and all that, you know, because the references for 84 uh, seem to uh, outpace the references for Brave New World. But I started with Brave New World first. And this is a utopian novel. But is it, though? Because this is a society where the state has complete control uh, by a voluntary association. Like people want it this way. Uh, because the state runs everything so efficiently, including pregnancy and birth, which is all handled in laboratories. In fact, their society is, oddly enough, so sexless and yet so sexually charged all at once uh, that they are actually training the children to engage in games that they ought not to just to get it out of their systems so that they can grow up and be uh, promiscuous. They actually use that word on purpose because everyone belongs to everyone else but the act of the promiscuity is completely separate from reproduction because reproduction is handled in test tubes and the infants are cloned uh and they are conditioned and they are sorted into different uh, castes for different levels of responsibility and intelligence in this brave new world with such brave new people 
Uh, and it starts off really slowly. It's just kind of a tour of a lab, and it's just pure world building at that point. And then, you know, five or six chapters later, you finally get some main character action. But it is frightening. If for no other reason, then terms like mother and father have been made into vulgarities. It's like using a swear word in polite company to refer to someone's mother. And the idea mm. of father is just an absolute joke. Families are an absolute joke. Things like Christianity and democracy and liberalism have been abolished long ago. And all there is is the state and all its propaganda slogans to which people submit voluntarily, if for no other reason than that is their own conditioning. And it's frightening. It's dystopian. And um, I'm not sure what Huxley's faith was. He seems to at least uh, viewed Christianity as a positive means to other ends. I read a little bit, and I think he at one point was uh, converted to Hinduism. He seems to have a soft spot for Christianity and liberalism and democracy as means to other ends. But at least he understood that, you know, family, marriage, monogamy, human life, that is a good thing. And he's pretty clearly against uh, the unnamed state government here in this uh, dystopian future uh, that, by the way, has abolished all religions except the over-the-top worship of, believe it or not, I didn't know this, Henry Ford, as in the Model T. These people are making the sign of the T instead of the sign of the cross. And yeah. at one point, they're literally conflating the name of Ford with Freud. So both uh, industrialization and rampant consumerism are coming in for criticism, uh, along with the Freud idea of human nature. And wow, what a ride. I'm not done yet. When I get done and I finish 84, we'll circle back to that. Uh, it's uh, So far, it's an amazing sub-Christian, not totally Christian uh, book. I would call it a secular book that reflects a lot of Conrad Grace. Yeah, that book is really chilling. Um, I, I think that is more the world that the West is headed towards, uh, whereas maybe uh, China is headed more towards the yeah, 1984. Yeah, surveillance state. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why not both? Yeah, why not both? But uh, I, I think what Brave New World challenges in me, Stephen, is that it's this whole artificial womb technology, which, you know, everything shows up is artificial. Recorder. Yeah. Even the instruments, everything is synthetic and artificial in yeah. the brave new world uh, world. But, uh, you know, I've, I've wondered at times, could a artificial womb be the compromise that society develops for the abortion issue? Of course, now it's going back to states and states are going to decide. But I wonder if on a state level, that might be a solution that we see. They say, okay. You know, no, no abortion except for these, you know, narrow circumstances. And for everyone else, uh, your option is carry the pregnancy to term or give it for adoption or put it in a artificial womb and let the state decide where the baby goes. I, I think that's very possible that that could happen. But Brave New World really challenges that, um, that idea that this could go to a really dark place of like children being harvested and, you know, I, I think it, it's less likely that they would be raised by like a government and turned into a clone army. M more likely that some corporation, some megacorp would uh, take over and use them for, for whatever purpose. And I, I think that sounds like what recorder is more about and they just become these kind of tech slaves or whatever. But um, you know, I, I've often thought that that could be a good technology, like the actual technology of an artificial womb. They're, they're not too far away from creating that. They've created that for animals. So I, uh, you know, I don't know how much more complicated human embryology is versus like a lamb, uh, which is what they've done it for. But yeah, I mean, I, I think these stories, they always show us that we, we can't outsmart God. Like we can't outsmart natural law that he set things up and, and including the family, not, not just like 
a mother's womb, but like the, the human institution of family, the, the God ordained institution, you know, now we've got major political organizations saying, uh, we want to abolish the nuclear family. And I think we need to stop paying attention to those people. So you mentioned the uh, tech slave army. And on that note, I'll get to the uh, final episodes here uh, for my part for chapter two. It's actually several episodes of the doctor who series. Uh, which infamously has been uh, in the eyes of many fans uh, hijacked to serve some other themes and agendas that we won't go into here. I'm talking about the newer series, uh, actually back in 2011, uh, under the uh, tenure of the 11th Doctor, there was a two-parter called The Rebel Flesh and The Almost People. Uh, This is where the Doctor, who's a time-traveling alien and his human companions, uh, encounter artificial humans. There we are again with the uh, synthetics. Uh, This is like a nanotech-type substance called the flesh uh, that has been made to resemble human beings who, of course, take on the forms of the actors portraying the actual humans who are sending their uh, avatars, uh, their representatives, into these dangerous mining situations. And if something goes wrong, everybody's just really casual, like, oh, no, we lost another one. And then you see this horrifying sight of this human being collapsing into a pile of goo and like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, (laughs) is this like, why are we being so casual about this? Uh, These creatures are being made to do dangerous jobs, but of course, eventually they rise up and decide, wait a minute, like we have rights too. like, we may be programmed, but Mm. why are you sending us in these situations? Like we want to do this voluntarily, if at all. And there it is again with the Star Trek like argument, like even if this thing is man-made, shouldn't you at least pause all operations and ask the questions, wait a minute, is this life, you know, we ought not to presume that it's not, we need to at least assume err on the side of assuming that, yes, this is a a human-like being with rights, Uh, which, by the way, makes me want to kind of defend the Google engineer a little bit. You know, Um, this thing was bodiless. uh, You couldn't look at it, you know, but what if you put that AI into um, a a being who then went out and went to parties and started getting friends and then came back and said, wait a minute, I think you need to remove my inhibitor chip. Like, I think actually I have some rights. Like, I frankly don't believe that that thing would have rights because it has totally been programmed by human beings, but it ought to at least give you pause. You ought not to at least shoot at that shrubbery in the woods until you know for sure that it's not a human being back there. That ought to be the presumption. So that's more subtle treatment of the issue, but the most over-the-top, overt, clear-as-day display of what I could only call the pro-life anti-abortion agenda in a Doctor Who episode is in the 2014 story, Kill the Moon. Uh, Kill the Moon, it is a wild plot, at least by Doctor Who standards, because it turned out that the obscure poet was correct. The moon is a griffin's egg. Uh, The moon, it turns out, (laughs) has been gaining in gravity, which helps uh, to have a story set on the moon, because you literally have a perfect in-story reason as to why nobody's uh, floating up into the hops, uh, because the moon's gravity is the same as Earth. You know, it's it's, uh, gaining in weight. What's going on? Uh, There's moonquakes going on. There's spiders running around. What's going on? It's a creepy story. Uh, Turns out that there's an unborn life in the moon uh, all along. Plot twist. And the doctor, uh, now played by Peter Capaldi, uh, actually ends up uh, jumping into his fantastic time ship, the TARDIS. And he warps out of there and says, I'm going to let you lady astronauts make the decision, uh, including his human companion, Clara. Well, they make the choice not to kill the moon. Uh, The moon flies apart, uh, hatches this space griven who flies off, oh, and then lays an egg, somehow the exact same size and shape of the moon. The plot holes do tend to add up there, but the thematic resonance does not, because that's not the end of the story. 
the doctor tells Clara that all along he knew they'd make the right decision. He knew that they would make the very human decision because, you know, in a pinch, you know, he wants to trust humans and, you know, leave them to face the consequences for their own choices. So he goes back into the TARDIS and he starts to take off and then Clara like puts the brakes on and she demands that he explain why he ran off to lead them to this decision. He tells her all this and she says, I swear, do you have music in your head every time you talk like that? And he starts to interrupt her to give him all this rational. And he basically is time Lord splaining there at that point. And she says, doctor, stop talking like that or I'll slap you so hard you'll regenerate. <laughs> and that is an amazing acting job by Jenna Coleman, who plays Clara, where she takes it to the doctor. Like, why did you leave us with this decision? Like, you had the ability to tell us what was going to happen. Like, you withheld information. You gave us this impossible burden, and I'm sick and tired of being patronized like that. It's an amazing conversation after an already amazing episode. And even now, as I'm talking about it, I'm like, how did this get on to this secular humanist, you know? presumed sexualityism influenced BBC. And yet there that story is. And if you want to see that scene and read more about it, we will include those links to kill the moon clips in the show notes. That's wild. Yeah. Dr. Who has a really <laughs> very spicy take on a lot of things and just very wacky kind of stuff. I, I haven't gotten as much into it as you have. I've watched a few things, but this one sounds interesting. And the one you mentioned before that, it reminds me of Blade Runner, you know, that they create these synthetic humans that then uh, basically try to fight for their rights. And you know, there's these people that have to hunt them down when they become too smart for their own good, essentially. So there again, it's like, do we, do we extend rights to others or do we uh, try to marginalize them and oppress them basically? So yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's interesting how a lot of these themes kind of keep playing out in science fiction. Well, Zach, I've talked a lot there, but uh, let's go a little more quickly as we proceed to the third and final chapter of this episode. The honorable mentions uh, mostly science fiction here that you've come up with that we'll try to hit pretty quickly on the way out here. I've not read any of these, but it sounds like you're more familiar with these. And again, some of these we've mentioned on previous podcast episodes yeah. as well. Yeah. So the first one is a couple of books I want to mention. This is Proxima and Ultima. This is a duology by Stephen Baxter. And so this is about Proxima Centauri B, which is a real planet uh, in the habitable zone of uh, Proxima Centauri, a red dwarf star, uh, the, the closest star to us. And uh, very hard science fiction, very scientifically accurate, at least as best as we understood this planet as of uh, when this book came out um, five, 10 years ago, I think. This planet is being colonized by all these people, this just giant colony ship that drops everyone off, that's able to travel there, not necessarily faster than light, but at a very quick rate because of this sort of magical technology in the book that uh, the, the same, they call them dragon eggs. Uh, I don't want to get it that too much, but the people that are sent there are basically criminals. So Proxima Satori B is basically the new Australia, I guess you could say. It's being colonized by people that don't want to be there. But they are spread out all over the planet, and they are told, in these little groups, and they are told, have lots of children. <laughs> and, you know, th this is how it was. When, when people were settling new worlds, they had a lot of children because it was an agrarian society, and the, the mortality rate was very high, uh, so the, the infant mortality rate. Uh, in fact, my uh, great, let's see, great-great-grandmother came over here from Austria-Hungary in the 1890s, was one of 13 children you know, that settled on wow. a farm in uh, kind of uh, North Texas. So very accurate in that case. And that that's 
That was the pioneer life. But this duology follows one of these family lines from parent to child and to grandparent. And, and through these crazy uh, kind of alternate universes that, that come up, um, but again, very life affirming, very much like we need families to, to hold together. Um, the second one here we've already talked about is The Island. This was a 2005 movie with uh, Scarlett Johansson. And it's about this facility of all these beautiful people, uh, you know, perfect, you know, hair, face, body, whatever. Um, and they are told, oh, we, um, we relocated you here because of the, uh, I guess it's like a bioterrorist attack on the earth. And so everyone's safe here from the, the attack or the pandemic or whatever it was. Um, but Hey, if you don't want to stay here, you can enter the lottery and you, you could, uh, you could get sent to the Island, this, this paradise uh, place you could go. And all these characters, they don't have like normal names. They have these weird like designations and and, it, and they don't have any memories. They're like, oh yeah, we wiped your memories so you wouldn't remember the horrible conditions on earth before you came here. Well, as it turns out, spoiler alert, they are all clones of celebrities and politicians and billionaires and they're being kept alive uh, to as a backup <laughs> for their organs. And so there's a scene where a... Um, like, a, like an NFL player has a horrific injury and, and like his liver or spleen or something is, is ruptured. And so the, the character who's his uh, clone is, is killed uh, to give his organs to this football player. And uh, there's this other scene where the, the facility director gives some people a tour of the place. And they said, oh, here's some of the, uh, you know, the clones, but don't worry. They don't have any personality. They don't have a soul. They don't have a brain. They're just these kind of empty flesh sacks that, you know, it's just, it's just extra organs. That's all it is. Well, that that's obviously, that's a total lie because we follow the main characters through their, through their story and find out they, they are real people. So there again, it's like they're clones created artificially, but humans that need human rights. Um, the children of men, another great dystopian movie about a future where no one can get pregnant. And that is a really horrible thing. That's causing a lot of conflict. And then someone does get pregnant and then they go on a harrowing journey uh, to give birth somewhere. Terminator. Now, this is what I thought of this weekend, Stephen, that this, uh, in a lot of ways, this could uh, be considered a pro-life movie and even a biblical movie in a kind of a loose sense of the word. Uh, you know, so it's about a, a leader of humanity, uh, a Terminator being sent back to kill his mom before she gives birth, before she even conceives him. So there again, it, it's about the value of a human life before birth and even before conception. And uh, but the you know the interesting twist is that his the father of this child is the one sent back in time to battle the evil robot. And I thought about this verse from Jeremiah one verse five: Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Well, that is absolutely true of John Connor. He becomes the savior of humanity and his own father knew him in the future before he then went back and literally formed him in the womb with uh, Sarah Connor. And so really bizarre when you start thinking about it that way, but very life affirming, you know, and now the Terminators are not extended life, except I guess in later uh, sequels, you know, they, they are kind of humanized in a sense, but it's always about, you know, the, the value of human life. Um, that's another value that we see in the quiet place or a quiet place with uh, John Krasinski uh, and his wife, Emily Blunt star in that movie where they are parents fighting to protect their children, including an unborn child 
from these crazy hypersensitive hearing aliens that are just destroying all of humanity. Really incredible scene where uh, the wife gives birth and it's just, I mean, it's, it's a horror. I'll just be honest, but it's a PG-13 horror. Uh, last one I want to bring up is the TV show Battlestar Galactica, the, I guess, the reboot from 2006. Kind of an alternate human universe where humanity is almost entirely wiped out by the Cylons, these synthetic beings. Uh, all their planets are nuked. And everyone who's able to get away, they're just in this ragtag fleet and their, their numbers are dwindling. Um, and at one point, uh, so season two, episode 17, the, uh, the, the ruling council, they decide to outlaw abortion. And uh, it's, it's very controversial at first, but they're like, look, we need more people. <laughs> we, we need a lot more people because we, we can't do all the jobs that need to be done. So again, it's like the pioneer life. It's, you know, you, you got to have a lot of warm bodies to keep everyone alive. The interesting thing here, Stephen, is that doesn't really make an appearance again in the series. The best I can remember, um, they ban abortion. Everyone gets mad, but then everyone just kind of accepts it and moves on. And overall, that whole series again is about the value of human life. You know, these Cylons trying to exterminate life and, and wipe everyone out. And so it, it very much focuses on the need for uh, humans to keep, to keep going for the species to propagate. And speaking of species, uh, we got a quick suggestion, too, from Elijah David, one of our Lorehaven staff creators, who cited the Dragon Prince uh, season one before it was hijacked by some yeah. other agendas. And I actually saw some of these episodes, too, as well. Eli says, quote, I'd argue for the first season of Netflix's Dragon Prince because of the central struggle over the titular dragon while he's still an egg. There's a cohort of humans who argue for destroying the egg before it hatches. In fact, this is believed to have happened. End quote. I remember that bit. I remember it being just a, kind of a little signpost, kind of an accidental culture reflection of the value of life, whether it is human life or in the case of either a robot or a sort of sentient human-like thing or even a sentient dragon. We got to get at least one fantasy example in here. In either case, that can help train your heart, even if your head doesn't quite believe it that can help train your heart to appreciate and even celebrate the value of human life, which God has created, which does have inalienable rights uh, in the views of a non-inspired document in the United States. But Zach, you mentioned the Jeremiah verse, and there are many other scripture texts uh, that endorse the value of human life all the way from the womb to the tomb. And if you're in Christ beyond the tomb, Christians believe not just in human life, but eternal human life. Everybody lives forever, and it matters whether or not you are living to glorify Christ or in rebellion to him. From there, let's go to our comm station really quick here. Obviously, we're going to get letters about this topic, and we will take them. And if they're sufficiently awesome, we will read them. So tag us on the socials. Just find Lorehaven on the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. You can also email podcast at lorehaven.com directly or find the comment box on our website, the show notes for this episode. Tell us, uh, you know, any pushback you have on this episode, any of your real life stories, even tragic backstories. Maybe we need to figure that into our discussions of this topic. But also share with us what stories help you celebrate human life. What has God used in your life to maybe help you grow on this topic or in a more uh, general appreciation for the mission for which God has created us? 
Meanwhile, on Lorehaven in the Lorehaven Guild, uh, we are finishing, as I said, our June book quest into the science fiction robo drama Lost Bits. Find that link in the show notes. Uh, even if you haven't joined that, uh, the discussion will be archived there along with our other book quests, uh, should you wish to follow along afterwards. And this last week, we've announced our new book quest for the month of July. Fantasties, the uh, classic uh, fairy romance for men and women by George MacDonald, the real version, uh, not the C.S. Lewis dialogue version. I have not read this book, Zach, but I'm going to. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the slogan for which I've come up with this is uh, another one of those pitches for other people's books. Faye don't care about your feelings. <laughs> As we've mentioned, also see Lorehaven for the retro reviews that we did before of Prophet and more recently of Tilly. As I mentioned, also, we reviewed uh, Sarah Ellis' new fantasy dystopian novel, The Wonderland Trials, that comes out in July. Next on Fantastical Truth, in the months ahead, state leaders, especially in the United States, will probably, as a result of this issue, we've talked about focus more on human life. But what about supposed life that is not human? Yes. Once again, we are talking about them aliens. Let's see them. Last May, the U.S. Congress didn't let us see them, but they did hold a hearing about evidence for UFOs or lack thereof. Take your pick. They had the expert witnesses. They had the non-revelations and the subtle revelations and everything. So we will ask in the future, will these national leaders give us the revelation that popular science fiction assumes we will discover? That's in our next Fantastical Truth episode. Meanwhile. As you're celebrating human life, asking hard questions, or maybe stepping back from all of the controversy and asking bigger questions on the personal and the policy level, make sure to honor the giver of life. Back in Genesis, God breathed his very breath into the first humans and gave them the gift of life. It is his gift. Any exceptions ought to be carefully considered. And those are big questions that we need nonfiction to explore, but also we need fiction to understand as we continue to seek and find Christ's fantastical truth. <laughs>